Let's pray together. Almighty God, we ask that your Holy Spirit be in and amongst us and move us toward you this day. That, Lord, the words of Scripture that we've heard read can be seeds in our hearts to bear fruit in our lives. We pray this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Names are important. Sometimes names even seem prophetic. My mother had an enormous red Irish setter named Aiden. He was about 100 pounds, and Aiden means fiery one, a name this massive dog lived into well. He was good-natured, but he had enough energy to power an entire city, and he never, ever seemed to grow into his massive paws. Most of us have likely looked up the meaning of our names, or your parents have told you why they named you. If you are a parent, you probably thought long and hard about what to call your children. Contrary to widespread assumption, we did not name Elsa, our oldest daughter, after the movie Frozen, but after Emily's great-grandmother. Her middle name, Lucia, means light. In Rwanda, when an expat has lived there for a very long time or has deep relationships with Rwandans, they might be lucky enough to have someone give them a Kenya Rwanda name, and it's among the highest honors. I was humbled when I was called Rukundo, which means love, by my dear friend and fellow pastor Francis Kibango, who also gave me this very stole. Names. Names are more than aesthetic. They tell you who you are, but also how the world around you knows you. Who you are to your people, to your place, your role is. Today, we come to one of the great dramatic moments in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus asking his disciples, who do you say that I am? But likewise, we have the naming of Simon as Peter, the rock. Peter declares who Jesus is, and Jesus, in return, names Simon Peter. Two declarations of identity and purpose, which we will explore together today. But first, before we do that, where are we and what is going on in the text? Jesus has been with his disciples for a little while now. He has preached his great kingdom manifesto from the mountaintop, the Sermon on the Mount. He's traveled the country, healing the sick and the possessed, feeding thousands and announcing the kingdom come. There's just one problem. The Jewish elite, Jesus' own people, reject this kingdom of God breaking in. The Pharisees, they always seem like the perennial bad guys in the gospels, but in reality, they are almost certainly the group of people whose beliefs are closest to Jesus. They take Torah seriously. They fiercely guard the covenant, looking for freedom from exile under Rome. Part of the reason why their rejection and failure to see is so painful in the Gospels is that they're exactly the people who are supposed to be able to get it. Jesus' own words to Nicodemus and John, do you, a teacher of Israel, not understand? would be a sentiment declared across all the Gospels for the Pharisees. So Jesus, after their rejection, constitutes a renewed Israel with these 12 disciples. And he travels the whole country announcing this thing the leaders have rejected. And already, 
The painful knowledge of his full rejection lives in Christ. He knows what awaits him in Jerusalem. He knows what awaits him on Golgotha, what awaits him on the cross, and indeed, in the tomb. But the disciples are, as always, playing catch-up. Jesus brings them up to Caesarea Philippi and then asks them, Who do people say the Son of Man is? Now, there, there are layers on layers here. The first is where they are, far north of Jerusalem. It's a city that has long been known for pagan worship. First to Baal, and then there was a shrine, a big shrine to the god Pan. And ultimately, a temple was built to Caesar. And in the rock cliffs were these little alcoves where the Romans placed statues for honor and worship, idols. Caesar called himself the son of God, worthy of worship and sacrifice. The city bustled, an awesome place adorned with the markings of pagan and imperial power. And so Jesus leads his little band of disciples up to Caesarea Philippi. And I picture him standing with his back to the temples and shrines and statues, which towered above, asking the disciples, who do you say the Son of Man is? In light of the emperor and the empire and the gods and all of these signs of power and majesty, who do people say the Son of Man is? Now the disciples give Jesus a little survey of popular thought. Well, let's see, Jesus, there are a number of popular hypotheses. Um, there's John the Baptist, others say Elijah or Jeremiah or another one of the prophets who, I guess, conceivably would return. But of course, Jesus isn't all that interested in a survey of public thought. And so he asks them the more pointed question. But who do you say that I am? Now, Jesus asked this in the plural. Who do y'all say that I am? It's addressed to the whole group, but only Simon answers. You are the Christ, son of the living God. Now remember our location. He is saying, you are the Christ, the anointed one, who is not the son of God like Caesar, but the son of the living God, not these false, dumb idols of metal, stone, and clay. And at the heart of this is Peter's own loyalty. Here is some ragtag preacher from the sticks, and when they stand among the shrines of awe-inspiring power, he doubles down. Jesus, you are the Christ, the one who is of the living God of Israel. Implicitly, Simon is saying that Jesus is his Lord. Now, next week, we will see that Simon speaks out of a place of half-knowledge at best. He knows Jesus is the one to do it, but when push comes to shove, Simon still doesn't know what it is. But Simon rightly declares that Jesus is the anointed one of Israel, the Son of Man, the Son of God. He calls Jesus by his name and makes clear that whatever anyone else says, Simon knows that Jesus is the one they have all been waiting for. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Who is Simon? He's a fisherman. 
And this means that he was not one of the smart ones who was selected in the synagogue to study with a rabbi as a young child. He's just a blue-collar guy. His name is Simon, son of Jonah. Simon means listener or hearer. And despite being very thick at times, he has listened to Jesus. And he got this much right. Jesus is the Christ. But Jesus knows that this fisherman has so much more to become. This fisherman has so much more to offer. Simon will fish for men. And even more than that, he will be a rock. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The response of Jesus, it gives me goosebumps. We all know what a screw-up Simon is, and what he will be, and so does Jesus. But he is Peter, the rock. The rock on which Jesus will build his church the apostolic witness on which this very body of Christ is built, the apostolic laying on of hands which binds us to these men in Matthew. It is also the foundations of how Anglicans think about and understand spiritual authority. Peter, a leader who changes the world, a bearer of the Holy Spirit who preaches on Pentecost and thousands from all over the known world believe. The one who bears the authority of the church to open the gates of the kingdom to the Gentiles and spread the gospel to every language, people, and nation. Peter, the rock. No matter how rocky his journey, hell shall never prevail against his church. And certainly it has tried to. Simon calls Jesus the Christ, and Christ names him Peter. Jesus looks at Simon, and he gives him a new name, a new purpose, future, and promise. Two obvious questions arise for us as hearers of the gospel reading. Who is Jesus? Who do we say that Jesus is? And what does he call you? What does he call us? Sometimes we can overemphasize the difference between our ancient world and our own. It was indeed a radically different world. But in many ways, our modern context, as it becomes increasingly secular, also becomes more similar to the pluralistic pagan world of the first century. Amidst the towering high-rises and billboards and prestigious universities of Boston, Massachusetts, Jesus asks us, who do people say that? Some say you're just fiction. Some say you are just a great moral teacher. Some say that you were just a leader of a failed insurrection. Others, the archetype of resignation. But, but who do you say that I am? To which at Church of the Cross, we respond, the Lord, our Lord, the Son of the living God. We declare that in the creed each and every week. We declare it when we baptize adults and, children's al and children alike. We declare it even when, in the face of overwhelming cultural and economic power, we feel small 
like a handful of fishermen standing in front of all of these grand temples. They don't fit in. But that's not all. If you notice, the Nicene Creed begins with, we believe, but the Apostles' Creed, the one used in baptism and confirmations, begins, I believe. Our response must, be, must both be our Lord and my Lord. There can be no muddled half-heartedness. You can't have a foot in two camps. There are the idols on the mountainside and on Commonwealth Ave. And then there's Jesus. Who do you say that he is? In the dark, when you are alone, when you, uh, when you are at when you are with your colleagues, when the chips are down and it is time to make difficult decisions, who is he? Is he Lord? And if yes, then buckle up. Which brings us to our second point. If you call him Christ, the son of the living God, there is nowhere to hide. He will look at you like he looked at Peter, terrible and wild, and he will name you. Obviously, you already have a name, but so did Simon. When you call Jesus Lord, when you belong to his body, you will find that you have a new name, a new purpose, a new future. I'd like to say that the Christian life is many things, but it is not boring. If you declare Jesus Lord and invite the Holy Spirit into your life, get ready because he is going to name you and it will make all the difference. Your name is beloved. Your name is son or daughter. Your name is image bearer, but it may also be healer of the sick, evangelist to the lost, builder of good things, teacher of truth, creator of hospitality, gardener of wild spaces, protector of the innocent, sailor of uncharted waters, witnessing cupbearer to the powerful. He might call you mother or father, friend of the friendless, friend of the brokenhearted, pastor. All of these are just examples of the names that Christ might be calling. That's not just something that happens to spiritual people. There is nothing good in you that doesn't have a place in God's call on your life. Even the vices that you struggle with can be resurrected to his glory. And that calling may not sound extraordinary from the outside but when you say jesus but when you when jesus says your name when you really hear it the calling purpose and future something inside of you will come alive but don't be discouraged don't be discouraged if you hear your name and know that you are nowhere close to mature enough to live into that calling yet Think about how much happens to Peter after this point. The first time Peter speaks after this interaction where Jesus names him, Jesus responds, get behind me, Satan. He isn't a rock on which you can build anything yet. And maybe, maybe you are not either. But friends, we stand in the midst of Boston, a place of wealth and power and influence and you all are not here to make business connections. If you are a member of Church of the Cross, you're here because you love Jesus. We are a small community who calls Jesus Lord because we belong to him 
and he has big plans for each and every one of us in this place. But he also has a calling for this church, Church of the Cross. When Jesus promises that hell will not prevail against his church, he didn't mean any individual church in particular, but against his body throughout all time and space. And friends, we are part of that body. We belong to Jesus, and he collects us with all our new names and all our new callings and giftings, which are irrevocable, to be members of that body in this place, Boston. And the Lord has calling for us as a body to be a witness to him in the place he has planted us. And we are in a time of transition. We're in a time of pandemic. And this, can, this might make us feel like our common life is fragile. Changing leadership can make it hard to imagine what the Lord is doing in and amongst us. But this church is no accident. We offer a clear, rooted, beautiful, and engaged witness to our Lord. In normal times, we do so with remarkable levels of hospitality and mutual life. But before long, you will have a new rector, and your new rector will help you cast a new vision and discern with you what God is naming you for this next season. But that starts with what we call Jesus. It starts with what Jesus calls each and every one of us as we follow him in faithfulness. What do you call Jesus? And what does he name you? Let's pray. Almighty God, Almighty God, we are so grateful that in every time and in all circumstances, we who call you Lord have your spirit in us. And that, Lord, we who have your spirit in us are empowered to do the works that you've laid out beforehand for us to do, for us to bear fruit. And so, Lord Jesus, we ask that you speak to our hearts, that each and every one of us who call you Lord might hear your voice and know what you are calling for us, what you're naming us. But, Lord, also prepare this church Prepare the soil of our hearts as a whole community to know what you are calling us to in the future. Prepare us in this season of interim to be a people who know you and are prepared to hear your voice when you speak. And we pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.